0: You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is brought to you by the generous support of fans just like you. Find out how you can support the show and get access to exclusive content, merchandise discounts, and more at patreon.com slash Cannabis. If you want to learn even more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book at cacpodcast.com book. Or check out our Curious About Cannabis online courses and educational events at the Natural Learning Academy at learn.naturaledu.com.
1: It's Dr. Cody Peterson, your cannabis pharmacist. Uh, I'm a clinical pediatric pharmacist who's got a passion for educating, as well as a, a passion for improving patient care by optimizing the endocannabinoid system.
0: you're listening to the curious about cannabis podcast hey everybody this is jason wilson with the curious about cannabis podcast thanks so much for tuning in once again so today i am really delighted to be connecting with somebody who We've been chatting, and, and it's sort of been an inevitable collision that we were going to come together eventually, um, but I'm here with Dr. Cody Peterson, a pharmacist and, and very passionate educator about all things endocannabinoid system, endocannabinoid dome. Uh, Cody, thanks so much for being willing to come on the podcast today.
1: I have Thank you so much for having me. It's, um, it's my pleasure, really. I've uh, been listening to the podcast for about a year I've certainly heard most of uh, probably all of the actual episodes uh, but maybe not all of the behind the scenes you're a busy man uh, <laughs> you have had many hours of recording uh, and and uh, time is money so I'm trying to find a balance but but I love I love what you're doing um, and and really you mentioned the endocannabinoid ohm you introduced me to this concept and I've sort of taken that ball nice. uh, and run with it and have even teed Uh, taught a class to the University of California San Diego pharmacy school specifically related to the endocannabinoid home so uh, I appreciate the inspiration and and look forward to this conversation a lot
0: that's that's so cool and that's uh yeah definitely flattering that's nice to know that some of the work that we're doing is is inspiring other people to you know take these concepts and run with them and and teach about them and everything that's uh music to my ears Uh, so that's that's awesome and the work that you've been doing you know I've, i've followed your social media stuff over the past year and um you've really made an aggressive push to try to get you know the pharmacist's perspective in the conversation you know that's that's kind of going around in the industry we have input from all sorts of different people from all sorts of different you know areas and and angles you know, when it comes to cannabis, especially, you know, the medical use of cannabis, but um, pharmacists particularly seem a little underrepresented. Um, And so I have some friends that are pharmacists and everything. So I got really excited when I started to see that you were making this kind of aggressive push to do a lot of educational content and interact with people and share information, because I think that's a a critical perspective that needs to be, you know, a part of this discussion about how this industry is going to evolve and and play out um, and so to to kick things off, just to introduce people to who you are and your background and kind of how you came into this world of, of cannabis science, uh, do you mind sharing a little bit? I know that uh, you work in an ER um, do you mind talking a little bit about um, your background as a pharmacist and kind of what your day to day looks like, as well as how you you know kind of got um, exposed and wrapped up into you know really focusing hard on on cannabis and cannabinoid science.
1: I feel like wrapped up is an appropriate term to to describe how I feel (laughs) my relationship with with cannabis. I'm spending most of my days where I'm not at work, which I do work full-time at a pediatric hospital, as you mentioned, in the emergency department, um, where I perform all sorts of tasks you'd think of a pharmacist performing, which is sort of making sure the IV medicines are made correctly and prepared correctly. Um, And some things you really don't think of pharmacists Doing very often, which is responding to, to life threatening events and rapidly preparing medicine and, and conferring with physicians about dosing and, and medication of choice. Um, so, you know, if, if your child comes to the emergency department and needs to be intubated, meaning we need to put a breathing mm-hmm. tube in their throat. I'm responding now. Certainly, I'm not doing the the actual, uh, you know, manipulating of the patient or putting that tube in there. But I'm helping to facilitate all of the pharmaceutical-related care, um, and much of allopathic medicine or, or Western medicine has become very reliant on on me, uh, and the pharmacist, to yeah. to be a liaison between a complex world of drugs and and a you know world of knowledge that the doctor has. And to try to bridge the gap between what they what they know they want to achieve clinically um, and what medicines i have available at what dosage and, yeah. and in what form etc so that's really my day-to-day and, and i support pediatric you know pharmaceutical care in general i've spent um about eight years in pediatric hospitals um a couple through the, the southwest and really just providing what you think of uh, as what a pharmacist does. I do counseling on medications, you know, I do specific, um, drug, drug interactions, etc. Mm-hmm. Now I work in pediatrics and pediatrics is actually quite an ambiguous field. It turns out it's unethical to do, you know, to trial drugs on children. Uh, right. <laughs> and yeah, so hard to get
0: IRB approval for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, certainly it's more difficult outside of like a very serious disease. And so, it, yeah. you know, I've really come accustomed to having a lack of clinical evidence, right? the firm evidence that is, mm. is beholden to the adult population or, or really something that's a requirement and extrapolating based on what we know about the way this medication might work in adults and then trying to apply it to pediatrics. And it's very much the case uh, with cannabis that there is not enough information. We need to tease through this preclinical evidence combined with clinical experience to really come up with a not necessarily an evidence-based recommendation, but a scientifically sound and, and sort of um, experience-based N of 1 uh, as often as said. Yeah. So that that individualized cannabis patient care is sort of in my training without it actually being cannabis.
0: Yeah, and I can see, you know, uh, one thing we talked about off air when we were just kind of chatting and getting to know each other, you know, I shared that one thing I'm interested to understand from you is how with, you know, your, you know you've been to pharmacy school, you've studied all these mechanisms of action of all of these different drugs and, you know, have, have that, you know, foundation, but then learning about, Cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid dome and all of that. I'm very interested to understand how that journey has affected your perspective on all of these medications that you work with on a regular basis. Because, and that's why I think the pharmacist's perspective is so important because there are probably a lot of cross connections that you notice very quickly and and in kind of straightforwardly that you know, uh, other folks might not notice just because they're not studying complex pharmacology and things on a regular basis.
1: There's no doubt about it that my pharma- pharmacist training is sort of molding the way that I, that I see this, the plant. and, and what is really most intriguing from a pharmacist perspective is we really in pharmacy school, we were taught that selectivity is ideal. Right? You want drugs that very specifically target one or really maybe two places in the body. And that way, when it's administered at, at a very regimented dose, you ideally get a relatively consistent response. Now, that's the yeah. ideal. It's not really the way it works, but it's certainly the way that we're taught it. And, and pharmacology, which is the study of the way drugs work, is, is really a reductionist method on trying to approach the clinical effects of, of medicine. So we identify how things might sort of work in mice and in cells and then we give it to people and we sort of try to make correlations and, and extrapolate like, oh, okay, so it works like this in a cell culture and then we give it to humans, we see this effect, kind of what is going on, uh, but when you look at cannabis or well, or Let's back that up. When you look at the endocannabinoid ohm and you look at this giant lipid signaling system, this homeostatic master regulatory system, you see that it's not about one molecule interacting with one receptor. What you see is dozens of receptors and dozens of of, uh, bioactive molecules, and they sort of swirl together to create this this magic known as life and, and your episode with Dr. Vincenzo De Marzo, he really talks about, you know, we used to say in this classical endocannabinoid system, it was anandamide and 2-AG, mm-hmm. and you had your CB1 and CB2, and that's still the classical endocannabinoid system, but it doesn't take a very, very much of a zoom out to all of a sudden start to see all these other receptors that are interconnected <laughs> and not just receptors on the outside of cells, receptors on the yes. inside of cells, receptors on the organs that are inside of cells, and receptors that didn't directly connect to the DNA and the expression of DNA or, or really RNA within the, the organism. So it's frankly, kind of mind-blowing uh, when, when you really start to see it from this perspective and it, it sort of shook me uh, at my pharmacist's core.
0: Yeah. I mean, what's your kind of feeling about that, that, you know, so many of, you know, when I, when I teach about cannabinoid science, one of the things I like to do very early on is to paint the historical perspective and show how young these concepts are compared to a lot of other concepts, even though, you know, cannabinoid science and, and research has been going on like technically the first chemical analysis of cannabis happened in like 1806 so like you know sophisticated you know uh, research on cannabis has been going on for a while but because of these dynamics you know it you know it really wasn't until the 90s that we started to piece this kind of concept together oh cannabinoid receptors cannabinoids endocannabinoids oh okay um trps uh, it, that was the yeah the yeah and then as well exactly exactly and so to know that like so many drugs and and you know uh healing modalities and things have have been developed uh without an understanding of of the system like how does that uh what what runs through your mind when you when you think about that that you know we've got all this catch-up now to do and trying to understand even how the drugs that we're already administering on a regular basis, how they're influencing the system.
1: So much catch up to do. And it's not just catching up on the research science side, it's a catch up on the education and training side. Because physicians, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, none of these individuals are being taught. People, the public are not being taught about the importance Mm -hmm. of the endocannabinoid system of the fats we eat and how it correlates to human health and physiology, and so many other really pivotal moves. The one thing that I really like to point to is, is there is now clear, large meta-analysis data that suggests that omega-3s are, are healthful for a number of conditions, whether that's mood and behavioral conditions, whether it's heart disease, whether it's a cholesterol, dyslipidemia, or like out-of-balance cholesterol you still see over and over that omega-3 fish, fish oil in this case, omega-3 fatty acids are a benefit. The question becomes why? Well, because they're keenly involved in, in A, the endocannabinoid system in this classical sense, and then in this larger lipid signaling and eicosanoid pathway, and it, it interconnects all inflammation and immune response and so many really important Homeostatic mechanisms in in the <laughs> organism that it's impossible that we keep ignoring this and pretending that fish oil is only good because those are good fats, right? Those are good fats. What right, makes right. a good fat a good fat? Oh,
0: exactly. Why is it a good fat? And it's been so hard for people to answer that question because um, you know we've sort of been wrestling with this since like what sixties or seventies or whatever. Like which fats should we eat and not eat? No fat, some fat. Which fats? Um, and Yeah, when you start to study the endocannabinoid dome, endocannabinoid congeners, you know, there are so many uh, things produced from these polyunsaturated fatty acids that we now recognize are are so critical. Uh, It's something I've been just experimenting with on the side for myself in treating pain is starting to mix uh, endocannabinoid congeners like PEA and OEA with phytocannabinoids and seeing like how they interact together and it's blowing my mind because i'm recognizing that i've spent like 10 years as a medical cannabis patient getting sub uh optimum results because you know just administering thc or you know phytocannabinoids you're still missing a lot when it comes to how the endocannabinoid dome functions and so introducing endocannabinoid congeners this is where you start really talking about interesting entourage effects uh, these other polyunsaturated fatty acid-derived compounds that your body, you know, uses in ways that have been hard to, uh, to kind of nail down. Um, uh, that kind of stuff gets me really, really excited. And this this idea that, you know, like we we talk about like food is medicine, you know, and it's kind of a mantra that everyone knows, but no one puts a whole lot of stock into really like we continue to go about our lives eating what we want for the most part except for those of us with a lot of discipline Um, but this starts to bring that into into view
1: it takes a lot of discipline to eat healthy and take care of ourselves because we're so inundated with all these external influences whether it's marketing or stress from life i mean there's there's so many influences that make being healthy hard even though it's really quite a pretty simple concept it's like Michael Pollan said it right. It's like eat real food, not too much, mostly plants, and like that in a nutshell frames like the vast majority of the dietary advice that really needs to be given. Um, but it, it's so difficult, and um, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I was really excited to chime no, in. P E A and O E A, these endocannabinoid-like congeners that you just mentioned, are the molecules that that. Dr. Raphael Meshulam and Dr. Ben Shabbat first described. As the entourage, as the molecules that are produced alongside anandamide or 2-AG that sort of shield it from the enzymes that are aiming to degrade this molecule rather rapidly. And so it only makes sense that if THC is mimicking the effects of anandamide or 2-AG, that if we introduce these congeners alongside of it, that they can perform a very similar role of protecting that molecule from from being degraded and also potentially facilitate its transport, movement across. Membranes, etc., and so it's a really, you know, it, it's a novel concept in in the sense that no one's doing it really, uh, or it's it's um, sort of new. But it's not; it's it's been described since the beginning of, of the entourage. And as you you uh, introduced me to that entourage was was not first uh, introduced uh, by you know uh, Dr. Russo, who really made it famous in in two thousand and ten. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, yeah Yeah, I mean really throughout the like the 2000s or so there were a series of papers like between Ethan Rousseau and John McPartland Mm -hmm. and a few others that really you know were trying to push people to think about more than THC like that was really the educational goal at that time was just can we just at least get people to look beyond THC and so you know Rousseau's famous Taming THC paper um uh, McPartland has a uh greater than the sum of their parts or something in the title. Um, And that's where you start to see this like ensemble effect idea start to emerge from the beginnings of the entourage effect, um, which is, you know, uh, it's just, it's humbling because it just, it demonstrates like how little we really understand and how much more we have to figure out. And I like that early on, you, you mentioned the importance of the clinical experience piece, like trying to make informed decisions based on, you know, correlations, extrapolations, and then also that clinical experience. Because I think that, you know, uh, despite what people would like to believe, like we, we just truly don't know enough to be able to look at something's chemical profile or whatever and say like, yeah, this is going to have XYZ effect, you know, um, and be able to, to kind of treat it in that kind of strong, predictive, systematic way. Um, And so I have a lot of respect for clinicians that have been kind of gathering, noticing patterns and working with patients and trying to develop that kind of intuitive aspect of working, you know, with people with medicine and everything, because it is still, there's just still so much that we don't know. And you can understand everything about the dynamics of a CB1 receptor and what THC does, you know, all of these things and still fall incredibly short when it comes to trying to get the therapeutic outcomes that you're aiming for.
1: Well, when you introduce the complexity that we're talking about, you know, it really makes it a challenge to predict these effects. We know that THC activates the cb1 and cb2 receptor it's sort of the same old song and dance we've all heard but when you start to look at trpv2 trpv3 which are abundant throughout the brain and maybe you know either dimer connected to these these uh, other receptors influencing the way that, that signals are sent throughout the nervous system there's so much to unpack as far as like how cannabis is really taking making its effects right so cb1 is certainly the established role for the, some of the intoxicating and classical cannabis-like effects. Mm-hmm. But you know when we look at how other cannabinoids, particularly ones that are less rigid in their chemical structure, we start to see that many of these cannabinoids interact with, with numerous receptors, as I mentioned, both inside and outside of cells, and they have all sorts of different actions. They're not all limited strictly to, to functioning like THC. Um, yes. And there's so many factors, but the, it seems like the number one factor, this goes back to our omega3 talk is this is this tail. So if you look at the molecule of THC, it's, it's rigid in structure it's it's got three rings and so it can't spin around uh, kind of like CBD, mm-hmm. which is why it doesn't have as many places that to act in the body. you know CBD's thought to have 50 or more different ways that it might be doing something in the body, which makes, predicting how it's going to affect an individual, nearly impossible. Um, and so it's more in uh, sort of, okay, what can we, what sort of assessments can we make to start in a safe way? And then where do we titrate to effect? Because every individual is going to respond differently to a molecule that is so promiscuous, right? And that's the word that Dr. Vincenzo DiMarzo, this sort of grandfather of the endocannabinoid om. Uh, sorry, I don't think he's that old. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> not the grandfather, maybe just the father. Uh, and so... <laughs> um, the cousin, the, the uncle. <laughs> uncle. Um, uncle om. <laughs> uh, when, when you hear him talk about this this concept, you know, it's it's abundantly clear that this system is not going to be easily untangled and and so we really need to start looking at how do these these cannabinoids influence patients gather data on those patients and we need to start collecting that data so we can make better inferences based on on the large sets of data because right now um we just we just don't know how a cannabinoid is going to influence someone We know the THC will get the vast majority of individuals intoxicated at a a sort of select dose. Uh, But, you know, there's a lot of variability, and this ECS or ECBOM is so dynamic. It can adjust to all sorts of conditions. It's the reason that we're so adaptable as a species. and, And really, animals on a life on Earth is so adaptable.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, and I'm so glad you brought up the uh, the issue about the the molecule's ability to like move around because I think that's especially when we look at drawings of molecules all the time. We think of them in this two dimensional way, you know, like these are flat structures. Like you draw them, and you know that's what they are, but they're actually three dimensional structures. And when you don't have a bunch of rings, you know, making this molecule pretty rigid, and it's you know how it can move around, you. Eh, and this is very intuitive when, when if anyone ever shows somebody like a 3D, you know, uh, uh, molecule that you can kind of move around, um, you know, on your computer or something, this all makes perfect sense really quickly. But, you know, like with CPD or like CBG, these molecules that have loose carbons that, not loose carbons, but you floppy. know single bonded carbons, <laughs> yeah, floppy, that are kind of bridging... Uh, rings together and things. You start to think about, oh, well, those could twist. Those could, you know, bend around a little bit. Um, those tails, they actually can move a little bit. And depending on what they're around, can the molecule can change shape a little bit. And and all of that flexibility um, does uh, lead to to crazy amounts of variability. CBD. It seems like CBG is is sort of like that too. That it, it exhibits just a lot of different action um and cbg is one of these interesting monocyclical uh cannabinoids um so i'm really interested to see kind of what all we learn about that uh because it's still so early Um but it's it's just something i wanted to point out to anyone listening that um whenever you see these two-dimensional chemical structures always think about the fact that these are three-dimensional things and they can have very interesting they can they can transform in interesting ways just and how they move and that's going to influence how they interact with receptors and all of that. Um, which just makes things uh, immensely more complex. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you since you work in, you know, a, a pediatric emergency center, do you ever see, um, like pediatric uh, THC exposures or you know uh, overdoses that sort of thing come in. Of course, uh, and I want to get
1: into that, but you ran away from stereochemistry, and I didn't get a chance to comment. Look back <laughs> around.
0: Nonlinearity is totally
1: fine. So I think that <laughs> that it's really important to point out, you know, because that CBD molecule is so bendy, or really, it's got this this sort of stereo center where one carbon sort of functions as two two hands that can kind of spin around and something like this. It's, it's pan sensitive or like when we test it in a laboratory, it's like, Oh yeah, it works there too. And Oh yeah, it works there too. But predicting what that, that floppy molecule does in the body is Mm -hmm. even more challenging because there are a lot of forces at, at play that, we haven't yet even even sort of wrapped our head around, to be <laughs> honest, like, what? how's CBD yeah. getting around the body? What's carrying it, right? How does it enter the cell? Does it get stuck in the cellular membrane? What influence does that have? And, and you know, does it influence uh, fa and the enzymes that break down our endocannabinoids? Maybe, there's some speculation, no. Does it, you know, there's just, it's endless potential of the way CBD works which makes again a pharmacologist who, who's a that's a reductionist theory it doesn't really fit very well into the box uh, to be honest and so yeah. it becomes a real challenge on trying to predict how that works um, in you know in the case of i kind of mentioned this this rigid structure you know, we also see a lot of that sort of floppy nature, even from the uh, endocannabinoids, you know, there's, there's a lot of double bonds, but mm-hmm. there's a very specific sort of shape. And that shape is, is the key that we often talk about. But the thing about this key is we think of keys as two-dimensional firm you know, keys, and and they we sort of say it enters a lock. And so when we, you conceptualize that in your head, that's a two dimensional, single plane, uh, you know, interaction, and the interaction of a receptor at a drug is in full three dimensions. And it makes the nuances of the notches on the key all, all more important.
0: And, and I mean, like, depending on the cell type, I mean, different cells have different levels of rigidity of their cell walls and things. So some of these receptors are very much floating and being, you know, uh, are sort of like always kind of vibrating and things uh, sitting in this, you know, uh, you know phospholipid matrix, you know, along the, the cell wall. And I think that's something that often isn't accounted for either. It's just like these receptors, they're not just sitting there static, like they kind of, you know. Mm-hmm. Just always have a little bit of activity and are doing something and they can, like in the case of CBD, they can get misshapen depending on if something rests, you know, in a a different uh, binding site than the primary binding site. So it's, there's just so many, when you start stacking these variables and you think of all of these iterations of of how things can go, it's just like uh, overwhelming in one context and just endlessly fascinating in another.
1: And when overstimulated over from from the right or wrong, depending on what your clinical objective is, from a medication, these receptors can be internalized and not be available at all, yeah. right? And then after some abstinence, they come back, right? And this is where why we see the tolerance break and the, the really significant effects associated with taking a tolerance break from cannabis because this system is so dynamic. And many of our systems are this dynamic, but the ECS yeah. is particularly... dynamic and and sort of adjustable, malleable to our environment. And this makes total sense. It's involved in our epigenetic response to our environment and so many really important um, homeostatic mechanisms, once again. And my favorite term is the master regulatory system. It's making sure everybody else is in check, making sure that the organism continues to, to live on. And this is why we see this as a shared system across all animals on planet Earth.
0: Yeah, right. Yep, any, any pretty much any animal that has any sort of a substantial uh, like immune system, central nervous system, uh, you know, it seems like the, the ECS is a critical function. And, and Dr. David Mary, I think it was him in my interview with him, he said that he thinks of it as, you know, each cells or, or even each organelle's kind of like fine tuning knob, you know, that there are other things at play that are having fairly big effects, but the ECS tends to have kind of these more fine-tuning effects to nudge things back into, you know, whatever way they they need to be. And it's usually not a very aggressive effect. It's, you know, uh, oftentimes uh, fairly subtle. And I always like that that kind of image, this just, you know, kind of fine-tuning knob to keep things in alignment. If you knock things too hard, that fine-tuning knob isn't going to maybe be enough. You might have to do other things to get the coarse uh, tuning knobs uh, adjusted. But... um, I I thought that was a kind of a a nice, simple way to to sort of think of it, Um, just trying to keep things in tune and working smoothly as best as it can. Right. And
1: adjusting to if you think of it as like a radio knob, you know, as you move through the highway or whatever, there are slight adjustments that need to be made to help you get the reception Mm -hmm. that you need for, for, you know, analogy's sake there. Um, But that fine-tuning knob can be hijacked by this chemical that we all know and love called THC. Uh, And and what goes from a fine-tuned system goes to a very blunt unintended action of this medicine because THC as we consume it is uh, is we're taking doses way higher than than the endocannabinoids right. that are being produced and the endocannabinoids that are being produced are produced locally have many effects locally some systemically as well but you know these there's a very precise action of the endocannabinoid system in response to the environment. And when you inhale THC, it is no longer precise at all. In fact, THC is an extremely imprecise tool to achieve the effects mm-hmm. that we want. It's, it works pretty good, but it comes with a lot of side effects for that reason. The endocannabinoid system doesn't usually stimulate the CB1 receptors in your mouth at the same time as it does in your toes. Yeah. But in the case of THC, it's going to all those places and everywhere else at the same time. And so um, for pediatrics, which I do very much see, um, overdoses, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, accidental ingestions mm-hmm. is probably a better term it's, Yeah, that's a good with some regularity, yeah. Jason. I mean, I see kids come to the hospital and, and that have taken 30 gummies. Somebody left them out on the coffee table, right. And they're three and good luck, you know, having yeah. a three-year-old be able to read the little California weed leaf sticker <laughs> right. and just say, mm, yummy sugar. Uh, And and we see these individuals come to the hospital, uh, again, with some regularity, probably not daily, but, you know, uh, probably a few hundred Mm -hmm. visits a year uh, or more from cannabis intoxication at my small,
0: my one hospital. Wow. And what is, what are the presentations when these kids come in? Like, uh, because I think there's a lot of speculation uh within the industry around like how serious you know these accidental ingestions can be so what sort of symptoms are you um trying to treat or you know what do you see when these kids come in
1: so i mean the majority of children are, are okay right they, they are clinically stable is what we would, we would call them so their blood pressure is normal their heart mm-hmm. rate isn't off the charts They're arousable. They respond to verbal commands and and verbal stimuli, or you know, but in higher doses, particularly in younger patients, because there's there's an evolution of the endocannabinoid system. The ECS is Mm -hmm. imperative to brain development while you're in your mother's womb, and it's important throughout the rest of your life. But it seems to develop, and this is based mostly on rodents. As you might imagine, we don't do a lot of experiments on right pediatric children's brains. Uh, but, but as we see, it seems like the ECS continues to grow and, and expand right around until like sort of uh, late, uh, I don't know, like late, like 10, 10, 11. And then puberty comes along and all of a sudden we start to see the opposite effect. Instead of growing our brain and being expansive in our thinking, we start to see synaptic pruning saying, oh, don't do that in the social context. And remember, you're supposed to be wanting yeah. to look for a mate. And we start to see the brain pair back. The ecs which may be why adolescents are more susceptible to consuming higher doses of cannabis because they have actively they're sort of losing these these uh endocannabinoid Hmm. receptors that's speculation alone but we do know that right before that that sort of uh prepubescent phase is when the endocannabinoid system appears to be some of its large like most robust um but anyway backing backtracking to pediatric um acute intoxication or accidental ingestion uh, what we see most commonly is sedation, uh, and and you think, oh, the kid's mm-hmm. just napping and off. No, what I mean is this patient is almost unarousable to painful stimuli. You have to rub on their chest to wake them up. You also sometimes see very clear hallucinations, and we say that cannabis doesn't cause hallucinations. Yeah. But you don't have a baby brain; you have an adult brain, and your adult brain is is much different than the, than the child's brain. And we see this across every organ in the child. And, and, you know, when it, when a patient is born, their liver doesn't start to look more like your liver until they're two and it doesn't behave the same. So the way your liver responds to Tylenol is very different than a baby. And the same thing goes with, with our kidneys and many of our muscles, you know, our reproductive organs. There's a change that occurs throughout through all of this, this growing up. And when we're young, we are more susceptible to the acute intoxicating effects of THC, particularly young, young, again, Mm prepubescent. And that acute effect can be mild and they're just sort of sedate and maybe have some, like they're visualizing things You see kids kind of grabbing at things that aren't there in the the air. Mm -hmm. And these patients are often uh, admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit, the ICU, where normally very sick children are, and they're observed and they end up going home the next day. In rare cases, whether um, it's, we're not really sure why, actually, in rare cases, we do see much more significant sedation. Sedation that actually requires physicians to intubate a patient, put a tube down their throat to protect mm. their airway. This is rare, uh, but in, and it's dictated by the mm. dose, right? Often this would be more likely to be seen with, with black market cannabis, that's sort of unregulated, more concentrated, not well quality controlled. Yeah.
0: Right, might get a thousand milligram, or something. Eight hundred
1: milligrams of THC in a three-year-old isn't going to go over well. Um, So we have seen that rarely, and I've seen patients with with uh, seizures, and I have physician friends who've seen this as well, who have an underlying seizure disorder, and THC kicks them into a seizure. Uh, You know, we think of cannabis as anti-epileptic. That's really the CBD, but THC might as well, but in the wrong patient, uh, it can kick them into seizures. And we see this in dogs as well. And the last podcast I was on, I mentioned this Mm. is that the dogs can easily go into seizures with a high dose of THC. And this is due to different abundance of cannabinoid receptors in their brain. And because we all have an ECS, but it's not all the same. In fact, it's all, they're all different. And it's dictated by what we eat normally, how we exercise and, and, our hormones and our sex and our genetics, yeah. and all of these things swirling together, thus leading to why my skill set of sort of applying not really like firm data and sort of one step at a time and making sort of assumptions, testing it with the patient. Oh, no, that didn't work. Okay, let's tinker with yeah. it. Here. So it's just sort of the application that has to be applied in pediatrics, and it just so happens to look well in, in uh, cannabis as well.
0: And is there a um, is there any sort of treatment available that allows you to kind of help expedite the come down uh, from that in kids, or is it really just to give them water and observe and just make sure they're comfortable until uh, they're kind of backgrounded? in? Yeah, again? IV
1: fluids, monitoring. Um, you know, if they're acutely agitated, we'll give them a benzodiazepine, right. And they can become agitated, um, because they're Mm -hmm. tripping essentially. Uh, and, and again, not intentionally either. It's not like they've been preparing for this moment. They accidentally feel this way. Um, so I think there's, there's something there and the industry doesn't really want to acknowledge harms of cannabis very often. Um, and I think it's just an important, important conversation to be having. Is look, this can be harmful for children. All the more reason to regulate it and not have these black market products that sort of highly available and produced all over the place. So I think it's a call to like, okay, child safe packaging. Okay, you know, a real education for parents about the true risks, because parents don't want their kids in the hospital. Like that's that I've seen plenty of right. kids show up, and to you know, parents who aren't necessarily negligent and bad people someone came over and left a bag of gummies uh, under the the coffee table and they didn't see it. Right. So there's a lot of accidents that can happen. Mm -hmm. And because unlike alcohol, unlike cigarettes, which are putrid and gross uh, you know, you, you can eat a gummy without, you know, maybe a little bitter taste in your mouth that tastes like cannabis. It's pretty easy for a kid to do that, but no kids are slugging back beers. and like, Oh yeah, I just did this for fun. Right. Uh, So it's, it's a really interesting dynamic.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a bit unique compared to um I guess what what parents would normally be accustomed to and even myself as a parent it's something that I'm like having to to think through like okay, you know, you think about childproofing and everything, but you know, this is you know, kind of another level of things, if, you know, if, if someone comes to visit, uh, you know, trying to keep track of like is there anything that yeah, it's like set down somewhere get it in the box where we keep things you know like get it you know try to keep things uh put away and it it requires some like retraining um because normal i mean we're in this new age where prohibition is falling apart so you know normally you'd be hiding these things anyway because you don't want to go to jail there's a whole market and for so places to hide these
1: things right remember all the cocaine right? and yeah. the little bibles and yeah. like all these stash spots uh
0: Yes. Yeah. I, I, when I was in college in my twenties, I definitely had a Mountain Dew stash can. Yeah, um, happened. and yeah, and it's, 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 I think it's something that there needs to be more conversation around, you know, just what do we need to be conscious of as parents, um, in thinking about cannabis and not just with THC products, but even with CBD products, given the the great diversity of quality, across hemp products. Uh, a lot of them actually have THC in them and not just like at 0.3%. Like <laughs> if you go around and test them, there are actually quite a few hemp products on the market that have quite a bit of THC in them. And so even on that level, making sure people are thinking, you know, uh, and, and kind of acting from a precautionary kind of way. But this, the segue is really nicely into another conversation I wanted to have which is as a, you know, from your perspective, what are some of the, you know, beyond uh, accidental ingestion, what are some of the uh, risks or like drug-drug interactions, things like that, that you think about or a little concerned about, you know, as the industry is progressing and we're seeing all of these products roll out? Um, You know, like I said, especially in the hemp space, um, where we're seeing a lot of for lack of a better term, interesting experimentation innovation uh, with cannabinoids. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What's, what's going
1: through your mind there? Oh man, there's so much to unpack there. So, so really I'm a, <laughs> I'm a fan of the the cannabinoids that the plant makes and not the ones that chemists make in laboratories just as a general, well, I think the most of the industry would agree. So kind of setting aside anything that's yeah. going on around the farm bill and synthesis uh, for maybe another podcast. Um, yeah. Definitely from a drug drug interaction perspective, CBD, because it is so dynamic and has that sort of um, stereochemistry we talked about, it has the potential to interact with a lot of enzymes in the body. And those enzymes are really important for breaking down other drugs and very important for breaking down endocannabinoids and, and many other, many other, um, I guess, processes in the body. So there's definitely clear drug interactions with numerous medicines. So many medicines I couldn't dare try to go into them now. The most concerning are ones that have to do with uh, clotting usually or, or bleeding. So Coumadin or Warfarin, which is a medication used to thin blood, um, but then also clopidogrel and, and sort of antiplatelet medicines that patients may be taking post-stroke or, or sorry, post uh, post uh, heart attack and many of these other conditions. And these medicines are specifically designed and and studied outside of the context of CBD. And then you start introducing CBD and there could be clinical implications. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be using CBD, it just means that we should be including healthcare professionals in the conversation around what herbal supplements you're taking, which includes cannabidiol and THC, and many of other of these botanical derived uh, molecules. We also don't know how terpenes interact with this whole process. And, and right. we know that they're probably, <laughs> you know, taking down some of these enzymes, but in what capacity to what clinical extent, um, we don't, we can only speculate at this time. So there's a lot to be said on the drug-drug interactions. Um, I don't get as alarmed with, with um, like sort of sedation meds, et cetera, because people tend to, you know, they, if you get a warning, if I process THC alongside an adivan or a benzodiazepine, I'll get a warning mm-hmm. in the system that this can cause profound sedation. But what we find mostly with cannabinoids yeah. is patients are taller or titrating to effect. And patients are pretty on top of, especially any non-naive user, like what- the effects are and, and sort of what the ideal dose for them is, or at least where to stop when, when they've gone far enough, maybe not the yeah, ideal. Yeah. Dose. So, um, definitely a lot there. Um, and you would ask me one more question oh, about just a, availability, I guess, in of these products is w- we're f- starting to see it, but people still aren't telling their pharmacists what they're taking or, or they have no one to go to that can yeah. help them navigate the, the cannabis space and particularly when you look outside of cbd which at least we have some research on you know how it interacts with other medicines cbg cbga you know we have one or two clinical studies when i say clinical i don't mean clinical <laughs> i mean preclinical, animal or cell culture like a little bit of data and yeah. we cannot make reasonable assessments on that so we have patients who are consuming a medication alongside other medications and we have no idea what the implications are for the efficacy of the medicines that we originally put them on. And we, we like data and, in cannabis because of the illegality, we've been stuck to having no, no good science to sort of support us clinically.
0: Yeah. I mean, if, <clears throat> if it weren't for prohibition, we probably would have seen a lot of these cannabinoids spun out as dietary supplements or whatever, uh, way earlier than now um and might already have a couple of decades behind us of playing around with yeah high cbg products high cbn products and not to mention yeah all of the synthetically derived things going on thcp and thco acetate delta 8 thco acetate um one thing that's been driving me crazy i don't know if you've noticed this too because we're both on linkedin and, and end up commenting and stuff on a lot of the same things but um, I've noticed that a lot of people in the hemp industry are saying things like THCO, THCV, um, etc. But they're actually referring to Delta 8 versions of those things and not, you know, and it's sort of hijacking the fact that we use THCV and, and THCO acetate and all these names, you know, to default to just, you know, it's just inferred that Delta 9 is is what you're talking about. And now there's this weird marketing language thing happening where uh, delta a these isomers are being confounded in in the discussion, which I find uh, just really um, yeah I don't find it super disturbing because I'm not super worried about uh, like delta eight THC or delta eight THCV um, in any serious context, but just the it's a it's a disturbing habit of the industry. I'll say that. It's it's definitely something I, yeah, it's a really, uh, it makes me really, really concerned for the future of how the industry is going to play out. Um, if people don't start to become more mindful of how we communicate, um, about all of these things. Um, and especially like, for instance, if someone, uh, came to you and we're trying to talk to you about, um, you know, different formulations or something, and they were saying, yeah, I've I've started taking this THCV product on top of of this. Well, you're going to probably assume they're talking about Delta nine. Um, and so your thought process is going to go into that. And if you're doing any research or whatever, you're going to be looking for that. Um, while the whole time they may be actually consuming a totally different molecule uh, and they don't even know it. Um, and so it's, it's a weird time.
1: What it is, is, is we've created a, a gray area for all of these T8, these Delta 8 products. And because of verbiage that wasn't yeah. well vetted by chemists uh, or, or by people in the space, but rather by politicians, we ended up finding ourselves in a situation where um delta eight as long as it it's made from hemp right or really anything that's made from hemp can be framed as legal like you could make i I don't even know you could make a crack out of hemp right now and and try to argue (laughs) that it's legal I don't think you can do that chemically, at least not easily, but it's, it's really out of control. Right.
0: Now there's someone out there. that just heard that. That's like, ding. "Ding." they just made the connection. They're like,
1: Oh, I saw this (laughs) recipe for great crack CBD crack one time. No, (laughs) um, (laughs) you're, you're spot on Jason. And there's a real concern for, for transparency in the space. And this is about adverse side effects to cannabis. This is about what's legal and what's not illegal. What will cause a positive drug test and what won't, what's actually being grown in a yeah. plant versus being made in a plant uh, and and really it's not clear what is going on for the consumer um, I think it's funny that that the DEA has clearly said that tetrahydrocannabinols are illegal which is THCV mm-hmm. THCP THCO acetate for sure mm-hmm. and and because it's legally derived from hemp we are now saying oh well there's no enforcement that we can do on that or there's just nothing that we can do because the legal gray area is just too gray." um and so what you're seeing is uh you know manufacturers taking advantage of the current legal landscape getting the money while the getting's good uh, and it's encouraging bad behavior. The market is also shifting rapidly, right? Uh, an established market of, of sort of the legacy uh, growers, producers, et cetera, have a shrinking piece of the pie. And they're, they're trying to diversify. And, and I can't really be overly mad um, at the industry. But, you know, the FDA and DEA, they, we, they built this city, right? And, and so now we're just dealing with, with right. the secondary problems associated with bad design. And so we're we're trying to roll that back, and we need to drive forward a, a new, more transparent, more inclusive uh, industry and and I want to be part of that movement and supporting particularly medical patients and businesses who are trying to do this um, for medical patients.
0: yeah, I mean that's a, a a good observation to make that like we wouldn't even be in the situation of having to deal with all of these different products and making sense of them from both a quality and safety perspective and everything else if cannabis weren't illegal in the first place. People would not be buying Delta 8 THC products for the most part if uh, just they could go get Delta 9 THC products Um, and uh, something that I wasn't aware of until one of the workshops uh, that I lead Um, we had Dr. Mark Chaldone come in and, and teach on some like advanced cannabinoid chemistry and he was pointing out the synthetic pathways to make Delta-8. And he was like, if you make Delta-8 from Delta-9, uh, you can make some really pure, clean Delta-8 products without all of these, like, isomers and things that are coming about. He was like, this is really an artifact of the fact that cannabis is illegal and people are trying to make this stuff out of CBD, which leads into, you know, all sorts of other things that come along with that, depending on uh, what acids and stuff you're using. And so... um. I hope that at some level, on the the federal level, that as folks at the FDA, DEA, you know, are wrapping their heads around this issue, I hope that it is abundantly clear that one kind of simple solution is, hey, you know, if we prepare for descheduling and there's a bill and, you know, if we can kind of uh, tackle it from that way to have a system in place so that if descheduling happens you know, we've, we've got the structure in place on how to handle tetrahydrocannabinols and everything. Um, so that if people do want these isomers, we treat them like everything else. If you make a synthetic product, there's gotta be quality and purity testing on it, like, duh. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and just normalize it. And then these, these problems would, would change rapidly, but, um, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I don't even think this descheduling bill will happen. Um, but I'm also kind of, extremely pessimistic when it comes to kind of American politics.
1: So they're so reliable and, and so effective <laughs> in all of their efforts. Uh, I, I hear you on your skepticism. <laughs> I really do. But I think it's imperative, um, you know, not necessarily you, but we uh, are taking a stance and making sure that our voice is heard. And, and for me, anything that yep. is semi-synthetic, anything that is being made by a chemist, by adding potent acids and, and heat in a laboratory should have to go through a different uh, sort of legislative pathway, particularly if you're manipulating beyond this isomer, right? And now they're at making the O-acetate that you talked about, and and when you uh, you know add an acetate to to the THC molecule, you're doing exactly what we do to the morphine molecule when we make heroin. So the difference between morphine and heroin is acetylation, and the difference between THC O-acetate and THC is acetylation. Now. Is it heroin? No, it's not heroin. It doesn't act on the opioid receptors, <laughs> right? It's not injected, even though reefer madness was was throwing that idea around a hundred years ago. Uh, that's my favorite. <laughs> right, plenty of posters made exactly trying to make weird people think parties and yeah. <laughs> something orgies and and injectable drugs. Uh, certainly, cannabis risks have been overblown in time, but there's no reason we should be allowing chemists to be making uh, synthetic molecules and sold in solvent stores without any regulation without any um, sort of studying of these molecules that are then going out into the public. We really need to know how they influence us. We often say, oh, it's can it's a cannabinoid. Like how bad could it be or why is it important? Right. Well, you have cannabinoid receptors all over your reproductive organs. Do you care about those? Are you into reproducing and having right. babies? Because cannabinoids can have an effect on that. And will it be detrimental? I don't know. We've never studied THCO acetate. That's a thing, yeah. <laughs> CBG. Probably not a big deal, but like I we don't actually know and and there's so many implications to using cannabis as medicine because of all these different receptors within the endocannabinoidome receptors that are being targeted by western therapeutics frequently
0: yeah yeah no absolutely i mean uh, just in general, uh, you know, when anyone kind of dives into the receptor targets on some of these things, it quickly expands from cannabinoid receptors to like you were saying the, you know, like vanaloid receptors, but you know, also serotonin receptors. And there's like 14 subtypes of serotonin receptors. Um, you know, the p uh, manipulations of enzymes, you know, you get into all sorts of crazy things that happen there. Um, yeah just just so much i mean you know and i said there's like 14 subtypes of serotonin i can't even remember how many subtypes of the vanilloid receptors there are but i i mean there's a lot at um, least
1: four of the and, trpvs uh and then you get into the TRPMs and and, and, uh, and all sorts of yeah. other ones and it's really a large system when you look at this endocannabinoid oh And we have drugs that target a lot of these medications already on formularies in hospitals. And we've been targeting these same therapeutic targets that either THC or CBD or CBG are acting on. And we've been targeting them with with pharmaceuticals. Um, You talked about enzymes, right? The enzymes that produce... Uh, these endocannabinoids and break them down. Pharmaceutical companies have developed many medications that do that, some of which have made it to human trials and yeah. showed, you know, marginal benefit or, or not made it through uh, the, the rigorous trials needed. But they're never really testing the cannabinoid uh, the, that comes from the cannabis plant, right? Those cannabinoids aren't patentable, yeah. therefore they're not profitable, and therefore they don't get studied at length. But if you make a synthetic molecule that targets the same receptor, like PPAR, um, then then now you can you can make a drug, and there are many drugs on the market that are uh, activating or, or interacting with PPAR receptors in uh, on the nucleus of our cells, and and that's the same mechanism that that THC carries, uh, and that some cannabinoids. might. Yeah. it's really quite wild when you start to see the connections.
0: No, it really is. And uh, would those be like I know there's some like uh are they diabetes yeah, medications? That's, that's one um, for that's part. Yeah.
1: I wanna say. Um, I might switch my alpha and my gamma for this super nerd out there. Uh please correct me. Uh hit me on hit me up on LinkedIn. <laughs> I was about to
0: say, yeah, I I yeah, I consistently uh forget, you know. What what applies to what? But, yeah, I knew lipids and glucose
1: is is really the takeaway message. So we have drugs called fibrates which interact with the Ppar receptors. They're they're approved FDA. We use them for triglyceride uh, dysregulation or high triglyceride levels, and then we also have diabetes medications that help to lower our blood glucose by activating PPARs and acting on the endocannabinoidome. Which makes sense, even though we don't have a good science to support using cannabis to treat diabetes. There are plenty of patients with anecdotal reports saying that they were able to control their blood sugars better. By using cannabis, either with insulin or maybe even got to stop insulin by using using cannabis, and that's because the endocannabinoid system is responsible for glucose homeostasis, yeah. and it does this partially through PPARs, the medicine, the same receptors that we we hijack with with pharmaceuticals.
0: Yeah, it's 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 going to be really interesting um, to. Explore, you know, like I said, as <clears throat> we start to see these connections and overlaps between existing drugs already, it's going to be interesting to see what sort of um, what sort of drugs could be replaced. You know, one thing that I think about is, you know, using cannabis as a, you know, it sort of has a natural buffer. I mean, this is sort of the ma- the benefit of some medicinal plants that the diversity of chemistry and everything yeah. it gives you a buffer. That's one reason why side effects tend to be less, but also the potency of effects also tends to be less. Um, but with with cannabis, it's interesting because it just doesn't take much to really get strong effects from, you know, for instance, CB1 receptors. Um, and so, yeah, it'll be fascinating to see what medications could possibly be replaced with um certain formulations of phytocannabinoids once you know because that is going to come from clinical experience like you said you're it's the plight of of herbal medicines in general that you're not going to see these fancy controlled trials you know done with them because it costs millions and billions of dollars to do it and no one's going to recoup their money from that so it is going to take clinical experience and like hearing from people like yourself of like what are people in the community you know the the healthcare community Sharing about what they're experiencing with these things and what are patients, you know, what. Their outcomes seem to be, um, and then try to collect the data. I mean, that if, way. if a doctor
1: wants to take a patient off of a medication in the hospital, and it's a medication they're not comfortable with, they call me, and they're like, "Mr. Peterson, Dr. Peterson, how am I going to take my patient off of this medicine? How long does it last in the body? What side effects might we expect from stopping it? And are there any medications we can supplement with in order to help with, you know, deal with this?" And I, we see this all <laughs> the time. Uh, you know, when patients are in the ICU, we we keep them sedated on intravenous mm-hmm. drips of opioids and other narcotics then when they come off uh they often have withdrawal and not that that that's mm-hmm. a bad thing because we were able to save their life by sedating them but now we need to to sort of come up with a solution to bring them off of that pharmaceutical mm-hmm. we usually use other pharmaceuticals how can we use cannabis to help reduce opioid needs help to treat pain you know mood disorders? Uh, and, and if you just pain and mood disorders alone, but if you throw in diabetes, yeah. if you throw in obesity, which we could probably try to find a way to hijack this system as ramanabant, mm-hmm. a pharmaceutical drug developed in, in the 2000s yeah. that was approved for in, F, uh, in Europe, it, you know, there's a lot of potential to sort of modulate the ECS and drive therapeutic outcomes. But certainly it's going to take someone with my skill set and, and individuals that, that have specific training in this space to drive forward that, and this is a big model. Most people who are using plant medicines don't want to be on pharmaceuticals anymore, but they don't know how to come off. And these pharmaceuticals are um, very dirty molecules, kind of like CBD in some ways, right? These antipsychotics uh, are on all sorts of receptors and can cause a litany of very serious side effects, both going on to the medicines and coming off of the medicines, yes. and dysregulation, etc. So. How do we leverage not just cannabis as medicine, but the endocannabinoid system and and lifestyle modifications, which by the way, the pharmacist is well-trained in how to do this. And, and how do we influence our diet? How do we influence our, our exercise and our movement, our meditative and spiritual practices to augment an endocannabinoid system to better prepare for the dynamic nature of stressful life, especially in the
0: modern world? Yeah, no, that's really great way to tie a nice bow on on a lot of this thought and uh one thing i wanted to um kind of ask you is what would be your advice to you know people that might be in uh pharmacy school right now that maybe you're looking at all of this and trying to think about you know what their role might be in all of this, if they're interesting in getting involved or even just, you know, like I said, some of my friends are pharmacists. I had one just reach out to me because he worked in a compounding pharmacy and he was just like, I don't know how to approach CBD dosing. You know, like I've got people coming in that, that want us to make these things, but there's doesn't seem to be good data. So even if they're not thinking about cannabis specifically, it, it seems like these are things that they need to be getting educated on because they're going to be confronted with it sooner or later, given the way the industry's going. So, uh, yeah, what would your advice be to some of these, these new minds kind of coming through the, uh, the school system that, that may be getting primed to enter, you know, their practice and everything, um, um, that are, that are kind of, uh, thinking about how to, uh, prepare for cannabinoid, coming, you know, the coming
1: age of cannabinoid uh, therapeutics medicine and everything. And you we're going yeah. to see more and more of this. This is a new niche for pharmacy and pharmacy is always evolving. There's always a new uh, sort of spinoff and, and yeah. uh, reiteration of, of what we do and what our role is in healthcare because medicine's evolving all the time. And, you know, a lot of the medicines coming out from pharmaceutical companies now are not pills at all. They're infusions of monoclonal antibodies that no one can pronounce. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, these, <laughs> these medications require special pharmacists with special training and special skill sets. And we're going to see the same in cannabis so what i would challenge individuals to do if they're a pharmacist will a ask for this education tell your professors you want to know about how this relates to the endocannabinoid system and if they tell you that's not important they're not they're not versed on what's really going on here the second thing that, that you can do is you need to think of things in the context of the endocannabinoid system When you're learning about the neurotransmitter systems, we have to reframe that and think about, oh, how would that interplay with the ECS? Oh, well, I said 5-HT1A and I know that CBD plays in that realm or that 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 interacts with endocannabinoids and all of these, these complex nuances. Um, so those are some of the things that, that you can do to just sort of start preparing right now, but you have to be open-minded to where, you know, plant medicine took us, where pharmacology brought us so far and where it sort of needs to go. We've only recently sort of agreed that there are things happening at these receptors that we did not previously account for, like the internalization that I mentioned, or like the, um, what's known as biased agonism, meaning Mm -hmm. the shape of that key can be very very similar but despite that even and even though it has affinity right it, it is attracted to the receptor that slight variation in structure results in a very different response at the receptor a very different biological response within the body and i had a really good point that i wanted to mention and i can't for the life of me remember uh <laughs> yeah it, it flew, flew away. away so um there's it, there's so much here that that is interconnected with serotonin, dopamine, uh hydro uh sorry, hydrocortisone, or really what I'm trying to say is cortisol, and our stress response is directly connected to the ECS, inflammation. We use medicines all across the hospital that interact with this. I use glucocorticoids, which are on the stress response. 2AG is a, a really important to the stress response in the body. If you look at NSAIDs, the uh, naproxen, ibuprofen, these medications inhibit the mm-hmm. COX enzyme. We know that at certain doses, cannabinoid acids might inhibit COX. We know that Tylenol, a medicine commonly used to decrease fever and decrease pain, is likely increasing endocannabinoid levels and it, in actually attaching to the same molecules uh, yeah. that are basically arachidonic acid in the body and, and creating its own effects in endocannabinoid like effects, it could be TRPV, and, and that's how it helps break a fever. So medicines are being rediscovered in a new light in the in the eye of this ECS. And when you start to think about the fact that so many of these receptors in the body, whether it be a dopamine, be it serotonin, are coupled like physically conjoined in the body yes. to another receptor the interconnection crosstalk, talk or whatever word we want to use is astounding and it applies to every pharmacist practice uh, in the entire u.s so no that's the world in the entire world sorry about that uh so we need to be thinking about all of our medicines in the context of the endocannabinoid system another example that comes to mind i just wrote a piece on on 2ag so this is why 2ag is on my brain um it, we have certain medications antidepressants that have been shown to modulate the endocannabinoid levels in in rodent brains right so the antidepressant effect of certain medicines might be related mm-hmm. to the endocannabinoid system modulation so there is no reason we're not we're not being taught about this system, but only about 10 to 20% of all doctors and pharmacists are actually learning about this, especially outside of the context of abuse.
0: Yeah. And and a lot of that exposure is still relatively minor too. Like a lot of, you know, a lot of that 10 20% is just being exposed to that. There are these endocannabinoids, there are cannabinoid receptors, that sort of thing. Um, and not even accounting for all of this complexity that we're highlighting. So there's, it's obvious there's still a long way to go. Um, and that's, you know, that's why I like connecting with people like yourself that recognize the importance of, you know, reliable, um, and high impact education around, you know, all of these things, you know, what are the questions people need to be asking and thinking about, um, and getting past the, kind of pop culture level, uh, you know, of all these scientific topics that kind of get recycled and regurgitated constantly, but there are bigger, better discussions to be had. And um, so, you know, by the time this comes out, it'll be announced, but I'm excited to have you, you know, as part of our Curious About Cannabis educator team, because uh, that's that's really the goal, you know, in trying to evolve Curious About Cannabis into this broader kind of service to to drive this education. It's like, what are these conversations that we need to be having And let's have them now and like spread that and try not to waste our energy on uh, conversations and ideas that, um, you know, are either just totally outdated as a lot of them are that are kind of recycled. Yeah. Or they're just misguided. Like, you know, they result from just a misunderstanding of, of, you know, a lot of poor things and that's pretty easy to clean up for people. Um, I love in my workshops, like having a chance to go through questions and, show these things. And, you know, it, it doesn't take long for people to at least recognize like, okay, the old stuff I learned, like, let's just trash a lot of that because obviously this is more complex than I thought. And let's start from sort of a new humble beginning and move forward. Um, and so seeing that, that, that happen, um, as fast as possible, you know, far and wide, as far as we can spread it, um, I think is critical. So, Thanks so much for the work that you do, the passion that you have for sharing that. I know you're super busy, so the fact that you're able to post on social media as much as you do blows my mind, um, honestly, (laughs) because I try to to keep up with it, too. I know how taxing that is. but i want to make sure that you know that that effort uh does not go unnoticed and it's it's definitely thank you so impact. much you know i do
1: put a lot of effort into that i think it's really important to get the science to the people right that's that's why i'm, I'm joining the curious about cannabis uh, educator group that's why i i teach pharmacology to paramedics because i just want science and an understanding of these core concepts in the in the eyes and ears of, of the individuals who need to know it in the case of the firefighters uh, certainly i'm teaching about western pharmaceuticals but you better you you Rest assured, I'm talking about cannabis in that class, you know, and, and trying to tie the, all this stuff together. Um, you know, there's there's really a lot to to move forward, but we're already starting this process, especially in Southern California. A lot yeah. of universities are adopting programs, education, whether that's through um, these sort of larger cannabis education companies or Through a homegrown service, Um, you know, another member of the Curious About Cannabis Educator Mm -hmm. group, Kyle Ballar, he, he just signed on to UCSD at their research center. Well, I teach mm-hmm. at UCSD, I yep. teach them about the endocannabinoid ohm. and their pharmacy school has an elective that is now being opened up to medical students. And now now doctors can take an entire elective dedicated not to the harms of cannabis, but to the actual right. therapeutic application and what we can take away from this. UCI, University of California, uh, Irvine is now considering a program uh, being supported by my, mm-hmm. myself and my, co- my colleague. There's so much swell, ground swell going on in this space we really need to just make sure we're we're there we're in the room to have the conversation and advocate for what we know is necessary which is a reframing of the endocannabinoid system or endocannabinoid home in the context of clinical importance rather than just drugs of abuse and and it's happening it's happening right now
0: yeah yeah and and growing Every year, I mean, I remember when there were absolutely no programs at any university, you know, that would touch on this at all. And just in the past, like four years, um, that has like really uh, exploded. Um, so it's, it's an exciting time. And uh, there's a lot of reason to be hopeful that a lot of the ignorance we've been drowning in for so long is on its way to well, in one way, on its way out, but as you learn more, you just learn how ignorant you are. Yeah, in and how libraries. we don't really know anything. <laughs> so that ignorance will be replaced by a, a new ignorance. There is a big
1: swell <laughs> towards education. I'm one of those people being educated, right? I didn't even mention this in the intro, but I'm, you know, in the, the second class of its kind at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, who's, who's teaching the, the oh, master's yeah, right. program in medical cannabis science and therapeutics. And, and this is a big push. You know, there's 150 people who graduated last year. I'll be with another 150. That's 300 cannabis, you know, specifically trained yep. through a pharmacy school that are trying to get out there and find a way to apply cannabis therapeutically and support the industry as it learns how to do that effectively, safely, scientifically, accurately, um, and truly and really trying to to legitimize this industry, this space, and this medicine.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Cody, thanks so much for being willing to come on today and, and chat about this topic that you and I love so much. Uh, you know, I this whole concept of reframing our perspective to, you know, apply these concepts that have come about from Canvas research, that's really what has been just piquing my intellectual interest uh, a lot over the past year or two, um, and more and more so. And I love time you know, that we can shine light on this, you know, in your world, thinking about it as applied to, um, to drugs and pharmacology and everything. And in my world, you know, I'm looking at other plants, and I'm like, I see all of these plants totally differently than I used to before. And I, you know, cannabis is an amazing plant and so interesting. But, you know, what I find more interesting is that it's given us this new perspective and new set of tools to reevaluate every medicinal plant that humans have ever interacted with and to try to better understand their mechanisms of action as complex as they are. And that I think people don't appreciate how big of a task it is to understand the quote unquote pharmacology of a plant. Um, Cause it's, <laughs> you're talking about thousands of yeah. of compounds interacting in all sorts of different ways. But you know, I, when people ask me like what's, kind of the frontier of cannabinoid science i tell them like this perspective reframing thing Like this is to me where it's at now people under trying to figure out how to look at things we've already looked at and see them through yeah. this new lens and it's going to lead to all sorts of i interesting totally findings. agree
1: in our foods too well, i'm really excited we look at chinese yes, herbs yeah. and we look at all these these other foods like Flavonoids, right? Everyone wants to talk about flavonoids in cannabis. I think flavonoids in vegetables are more common. But interestingly, the the flag, flavonoid canterol, um has been shown to be an inhibitor of FAAH, FAH, which breaks down anandamide. And so if you're eating a bunch yep. of broccoli and it's good for you, why is it good for you? Well, maybe because it's modifying the endocannabinoid system. And we can go on and on. Many herbs throughout history and folk medicine, et cetera, have, have a clear effect. We, in Western medicine, we, we refuse to accept them because of the variability of these products and their sort of unpredictable nature. But if we can start to want the, you know, put our pharmacologist glasses on, use, utilizing and leveraging new tools of modern, the modern era... And really focus in on you know what the active ingredient is. We don't have to isolate it to use it, but it certainly can reframe our understanding mm-hmm. its mechanism. And then and then really pharmacology is about simplifying and then predicting. And so we now have the tools to simplify. Yeah. So let's or or really unpack uh, and and let's leverage those tools yeah. to figure out how to use plants, which have always been medicine, uh, to our therapeutic benefit.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Well, to um, everyone that's listening, uh, let everybody know how to follow you. And um, I think you have a new website um, that launched and stuff, too. So as we wrap up here, I'll pass off the platform to you. Um, Feel free to share with our listeners anything you like. how to follow your work or anything else you care to share? Well, the first thing I
1: want to share is thank you so much for for asking me to be part of the Curious About Cannabis Educator group. I'm really excited to see what the group can do. I know this, I've said it on LinkedIn a few times, but I really think you have a group of all-stars and getting these individuals in the same room in itself always holds value. Um, So thank you for that. Uh, You can definitely find me on LinkedIn. That's where Jason and I pretty much found each other. Um, and and many of the people that I connect with in this space, but I do have a website. It is Farm D approved, so that's Farm D is my degree. So that's a Ph Farm, not an F. Although, I think you could probably try to. Do- <laughs>
0: If you're actually using farm, the like you're, you're doing yeah. the spelling, but it's currently approved is my website. You can see
1: there. I like to do b- B2B consults that help people develop their formulas, their products. Um, I do do some cannabis coaching, but really that's not my, my bread and butter. I, you know I've been doing patient care for a long time and I'm really trying to affect larger change um, and, and try to find a way to educate and to get get the good word out. Uh I'm on the TikToks. Uh you can find me at Canna Farm D. That's uh once again my my degree. And uh, on Instagram where I post a lot of content uh that's similar to LinkedIn, but usually maybe with a little more brevity and things like that. So that's cannabis farm D. I'm everywhere. Find me on one, you'll find me on all of them. Uh I love educating. That's my my yeah. passion when I'm teaching. I feel alive. Uh I feel I feel like an educational yes. stand-up comedian. Is, is sort of the way that I framed it. Right. And yeah. I'm teaching these paramedics yesterday and I'm going just laughing because I talk about drugs and just try to make it fun because drugs are fun. Uh, and, and we should, yeah. we should stop thinking of them as like a snooze fest and more like, whoa, this explains so many mm-hmm. things that happen in my body. So uh, I can't wait for the next podcast, but moreover, I can't wait to work with you more in general, Jason. So excited to be
0: Yeah, well, thanks so much for for being willing to come on, and yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what we're able to pull together. I I tell people like I don't even have a clear, I have a clear idea of the foundation I want to establish, but what it becomes and where it goes uh, is is beyond my grasp. And and uh, I'll point out to people that this educator team that I'm putting together, one thing I'm infusing into it is. Uh, all of these educators having the ability to to vote on certain things that will come up as we kind of decide the trajectory of curious about cannabis. So part of this is me trying to relinquish a certain amount of power to see what can happen when you get these people together and give them this platform and say, you know, what are some impactful things we can do and, and creative things we can do to engage people and and affect the industry in a positive way. And yeah, I have, I have no clue where that's gonna go, but I'm very excited to, uh, you know, have you and, and the rest of the team together and to see how that team evolves in the future is gonna be fascinating. And um, I'm very appreciative to have met you and, and crossed paths with you. <clears throat> Cause you know, that, that passion for teaching is something that as an educator, I can recognize very quickly, which is why I immediately connected with you when I started seeing your posts because it it just comes through um, if people light up when they're when they're meant to teach when they're meant to like you know they really have that that talent uh, for educating um, you can see <laughs> this glow that comes off of people uh, even in the writing just when you're reading the posts uh, that you know that, that passion is just so clear and um, and those are the types of individuals that I, I definitely want to have involved in and curious about cannabis's future in general it's all about you know setting the stage and uh taking that passion and doing meaningful things with it um so yeah thanks so much for being involved in that and yeah everyone listening check out cody stuff check out the website check out um the social media oh another thing i'll add is you're on the curious about cannabis Discord server now um so as the educator program gets going we'll be doing some events on there but that's another way people can uh, talk to either of us. Um, if you uh, join the Curious About Cannabis Discord server, you can shoot us messages, ask questions, whatever, um, and and we can address them there. I'll also be doing some um, like random video chats and things with people that are on there um, in the moment. So uh, you can check that out at com slash connect and, and hop on there. Um, But with that, um, I think everyone listening probably knows where to find us, but uh, cacpodcast.com. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And with that, everybody, thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it, and I will catch you next time. Stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on amazon.com and other major online book retailers.